contains, of course, the neonate will take account of the prophet for himself. Now, and so in verse 34, he sent, or he sent his servants to take his fruit. So far, so normal. But as we, uh, as we heard just before, as Mary read, the tenants will have none of it. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his sons to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. As I was uh, thinking about this passage this week, I wondered what it might look like if this was made into a movie today. I think I can kind of picture how this movie would go. Maybe you can too. Um, like I said, the movie, the, the story opens with this sort of probably a shady businessman flying a home and we, we know what sort of guy he's going to be. He's, he spends his days sitting in an armchair, sipping lattes and martinis, while he gets rich off the hard work of good, honest men. The farmers naturally are the protagonists of the movie. Uh, they're perhaps not heroes, but at least anti-heroes. Um, and they're the ones that he looks after, who look after the farm. But naturally life is hard. They work to the bone. Uh, and once you take out the businessman's cup, there's very little left for them to uh, even run the farm on, let alone feed their families. So they hatch a plan. Giving their produce to the boss, it's time to stick it to the man and take back what's theirs. They gather their rifles and dig in. And next time the boss sends his lackeys to collect his, his goods, Farmers will go and defend their farm. Over the course of the movie, the, the farmers hold off two waves of lackeys until finally the owner sends his son. And the tenants, the, these farmers have to decide what they're going to do. They really kill this guy's son? Isn't that a step too far? <coughs> but that reason, if we do, we'll be free. No more businessmen getting rich off our hard work, stealing our food, controlling our farm. In fact, if this guy is the heir, then who's going, to look, who's going to own the farm after he dies? If we kill him, the property will belong to us forever. Perfect plan. And so this brings us to the climax of the movie, the final showdown. Son walks up the door, up, up the drive. He knocks on the door. He walks around, looks around for the farm, trying to work out what's going on, but there's no not a sound. But suddenly, ambush! The farmers spring out from sheds and bushes and grab the son. They're about to execute him, but then the ringleader steps in. No, this is our land. He shouldn't have the dignity of dying on it. Take him out the gate, throw him in the gutter. That's where he deserves to die. And so that's exactly what they do. They take him out, throw him in the gutter, and kill him. As the movie draws to a close, the boss hears about this treachery and he flies into a rage. And so in the closing scene, the story concludes uh, much as Jesus' story in Matthew 21 does. 
which we read about in verses 40 and 41, Jesus said to his listeners, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Tenants are crushed. Their grand noble dreams of freedom dashed by their the ignobility of their actions and the wrath of the owner. And I think I could, like I said, I could pretty much imagine a movie like that. Maybe you could too. It's uh, probably a low-budget, B-grade action movie released straight onto Netflix. And uh, if you can imagine a movie like that, it's probably because there are plenty of movies relatively similar to that. It's, in fact, a pretty bog-standard, unoriginal idea for a movie. I haven't seen a movie exactly like the one I described, but it would be pretty common. It's not hard to find movies about average Joes sticking into the man, fighting for the freedom to control their life. That those sort of movies are a dime a dozen. And the point of those movies is that this is a noble goal. Maybe they've tried to achieve it in the wrong way, but this goal of freedom of the power to control one's own life, that's a good and noble goal, isn't it? The problem is that they tried to murder and slaughter their way to freedom. We all know they shouldn't have done that, but they should, at the same time, we all know that trying to free themselves from the rule of this lazy, greedy businessman makes them sort of heroes. We need to understand that is not the story that Jesus is telling. That is not the point of this parable. If we view these tenants as ultimately good people with good goals who just went about it the wrong way, then we have completely misunderstood the point of the parable already. For Jesus, the owner, is the hero of this story. Rightly so. He's done nothing wrong. In fact, he's done lots of good for tenants. He planted the vineyard, he fenced it, he produced the winemaking equipment by his own hand, he even built a watchtower to protect this vineyard. He's done most of the heavy lifting to make this place work. By the time the farmers get on the scene that he's hired, this has gone from a bare paddock into a state-of-the-art vineyard, only needing to be watered, tended, and eventually harvested. What have the tenants lacked other than the title deeds of the farm? What does the owner demand of them except to give back what is rightfully his? This is the point of the parable, and it relates directly to humanity. Because just like the owner of the parable, God has given us good things, God has created a good world. What wrong has God done the human race? Nothing. On the contrary, he has made for us a beautiful world to live in and to rule over. A world where not only do we have everything we need, but the closer we look, the further we look, there is always something new and amazing to discover. What have we lacked other than the, you know, being God himself, the ultimate authority over ourselves? What has God demanded of us other than the love that he has consistently shown to us to be repaid to him? 
for worship than he rightfully deserves. Indeed, when Jesus told this story, he was speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, God's people, so we might add to these blessings that they had been given the, the most complete knowledge of God, the opportunity for the most intimate relationship with God that anyone had ever known. They had, been, they had the respect of an entire nation, the responsibility of leading the entire world to know its maker. They had been given above all God's great and bountiful promises. Quite literally, they had been promised the world. What did they lack other than being God Himself? And yet, this was not enough. They wanted full control. They wanted never to have to answer to God. When God sent His prophets, they rejected and murdered them. When God sent His Son, Jesus, they got angry. They questioned His authority. They ignored his message, and eventually, as we'll see, they lashed out. But as I said, we're, we're in the same boat, we're no different today. Everyone wants to be their own boss. Um, that's why the, those movies exist, because they're so relatable. We all want to have that freedom and that control over our own lives. We don't want to have to answer to anyone. And if God sends his messengers or even his own son to claim what it is, we we question, we <coughs> if none of those work, eventually we'll join the Pharisees in murder. We are all of us guilty of treason, cosmic treason against the divine king of the universe. That's the point of this parable. All of us look for ways to dethrone God and set ourselves up as kings, if nothing else, in our own in terms of our daily control of our life. That is treason. It's what the Bible calls sin. Making ourselves the authority over our lives. And just like the master in the parable, God is ready to respond in judgment to the treason committed against him. There's a, a neat sort of poetic irony, poetic justice even, that the judgment is on the lips of God's enemies, the, those whom the parable judges. The, the Pharisees' judgment is on their own lips, especially like how the NIV translates this, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at harvest time. It's almost as if it's not mine. It will be done to you exactly as you have said. Jesus said 
have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There's a rather abrupt and kind of unapologetic change of metaphor here. Uh, but the parallels aren't hard to see. Just as the son uh, in the story of is rejected and cast out and killed, so the story in this quote from Psalm 118 is rejected, cast out, and, as it were, broken. But now there's a new development, because God's work in Psalm 118, we see, is to raise up and honour this rejected stone. He makes it the cornerstone, literally uh, the head of the corner, from which the whole building is measured and constructed. It was already the tenants thought that they could inherit the farm if they killed the heir. But God says, that's not how this works. Not only will he strip the farm away from those treasonous, murderous tenants, but he will raise his son in authority over them. The stone, the son, comes out triumphant. Everything is flipped on its head. The Jewish religious leaders, and indeed anyone who fails to acknowledge God, are stripped of all that they thought they owned, all that they held dear. In their place, the farm, or rather as Jesus identifies in verse 23, the kingdom of God, is given to a people producing its fruit. And God's son, the rejected stone, the king who had been laid dead in a ditch, is now the centerpiece of the kingdom. God's chosen king who reigns triumphant with authority over all the universe. And because of that, the destiny of every person who ever lived will be determined by their relationship to this stone. Uh, as verse 44 says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Now this verse is made up of two more Old Testament quotes. Uh, the one about the stone falling on people is from Daniel. Uh, there all the kingdoms of the earth are crushed under a stone which fell from heaven, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. These kingdoms of the earth are crushed like sandcastles under a meteor. You think you can build your life with no regard for Jesus? You think you can be your own boss? Well, you might as well be building a sandcastle at ground zero of a meteorite attack. Likewise, uh, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken comes from Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, and this one is talking about though, anyone who tries to attack the stone. Uh, Isaiah says, identifies this stone as God himself, the unyielding, eternal, unbreakable rock
you will get to behold the great and marvelous work of God through all of history and for all of eternity. On the other hand, if you try to be your own boss, all that you have here will be stripped away and you will be crushed. But if you want to try, that's your choice. You might guess, but uh, as we'll see in the final verses, in the tragic irony, we'll see how that worked out for the Pharisees. So, the final couple of verses. The tragic irony. Uh, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they felt him to be. These verses, as I said, are just dripping with irony. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard it, and they understood what Jesus was saying, but they're, they're the tenants, they're going to be judged for rejecting Jesus. They got the point. And yet, they didn't do what the parable demanded of them. They refused to submit to God's king. The irony is they understood the parable, but they rejected its implications. And indeed, in, the res- in, in that response to the parable, they fulfilled the parable. In their anger, they sought to arrest Jesus in verse 46, um, but they couldn't because, of, because Jesus had the favor of the crowds. But that didn't deter them in the end. Uh, the following day, they... Uh, bribed one of Jesus' disciples to help them ambush him in a secret spot. As Chris has told us about before. That night they formed their own mob and they arrested him. The following morning, which is the very first Good Friday, they convinced the local Roman governor to execute Jesus. They took him out of the city, nailed him to a wooden cross, and mocked him as he slowly asphyxiated in excruciating agony. The tenants had murdered the son. As Jesus died, the earth shook. The temple curtain tore even dead men and women were raised to life. And the soldiers who carried out Jesus' resurrection execution saw this, and they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. And so just as Jesus said, even in death, this king was triumphant over his enemies. Not only that, but the following Sunday morning, Jesus was raised from the dead and he went on to declare all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The rejected stone has become the cornerstone. The king has claimed his kingdom. And to all who will produce the fruit of that kingdom, all who submit to the king and obey his commands, to them the kingdom is given. While anyone who falls on the stone will be broken in pieces, anyone who falls will be crushed. All of that is history, and the results are true even today. All that Jesus has said in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 34, has been fulfilled.
there's one crucial element of the story left. The question remains, is there any hope for the wicked tenants? Is there hope of redemption for these who are most definitely villains? This is a crucial question for us because, as I've already alluded to, we should see ourselves as the wicked tenants in this story. Like the chief priests and the Pharisees, we should hear the parable and know it's about us. We're no less guilty of their treason. How do we escape the fate that the rebel tenants face? The death of God's Son was the ultimate act of rebellion, the consummate act of treason from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective. His death was the way that that rebels can be reconciled. Jesus' death was sacrificial. Uh, His lifeblood was, in the words of Matthew 28, 26, 28, poured out for many and the forgiveness of sins. His death was substitutionary. Our sin, instead of setting ourselves up as kings, is the very charge on which Jesus was executed. Quite literally, Jesus died for the sins of his people. For Jesus subjects those who commit themselves to his kingdom. Their deserved judgment has been poured out on him. And that's why the option is open to all of us. Any rebels who choose to switch over to the kingdom of God can. And so, make your choice. Will you submit to King Jesus and Christ triumphant 